Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I'm Sarit. I'm Itamar. Together we are Honey & Co. Listeners who have been with us since we started podcasting will know that we began with live talks in our London deli, Honey & Spice. It was a way for us to meet the writers, reviewers, chefs and producers, all the people we really admire in the food world. But nine series in, our podcast is so much more than that. We've done a series with the Victoria and Albert Museum. We've done one about International Women's Day. We've grilled our way around the Levant. So do check out our back catalogue. Of course, we were so happy to be awarded Podcast of the Year by Fordham and Mason. We got a hamper that's big enough to live in. <laughs> and now we're kicking off the new season with our favorite thing, which is sitting down for a good long chat with some of the most interesting chefs and writers from both sides of the Atlantic about books, life and food. And in the future, we're really going to dig deep. We're going to bring you insights into the food world through interviews and cook-alongs and diaries and lots of adventures. We really hope you join us. And in that spirit, welcome to Honey & Co, The Food Sessions. Today we have the most exciting young chef with us. Jake is a New Yorker. He started in culinary school, went to work for some Michelin-starred restaurants in New York, and then moved into food media, writing, reviewing, and recipe testing. His first book, Jew-ish, Reinvented Recipes for a Modern Mensch, is a New York Times bestseller and one of the books we most enjoyed during lockdown. An incredible first book, and we cannot wait to see what he's going to come up with next. He's already built a mighty following on social media. There are legions of people out there plaiting their challah loves because they've watched Jake on Instagram and on TikTok. He's a truly fascinating writer, and I know you'll enjoy him as much as we did. Welcome to Jake Cohen. Hi. Such a pleasure <laughs> to be here. It's such a pleasure for us. We have been your biggest Instagram fans. Yes. Even though we're a bit too old to be. No, there's no age. There's no age for yeah. any of us. <laughs> All we want to do is come with our Zimmer frame to one of your Shabbat dinners and just kind of croak <laughs> in the corner and look at the kids sure. making challah and enjoying it. <laughs> but Jack, let's uh, start at the beginning. So you're from a Jewish background, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, which kind of necessarily means food. food would be a big deal. This is our thing, isn't it? Food and guilt. This is what we do. Food and guilt. <laughs> yes. Um. In that order. In that order. Um, and always one with the other, never separate. Yeah, it's the best seasoning. I grew up here in New York, and I truly had that very Seinfeld-esque upbringing. It was always about food. It was always about family. And when we were eating, what we were eating, did you make enough food? Who gets to take home leftovers? All of it. And 
so much of it surrounded the high holidays. We were a relatively secular family, but that being said, some of my fondest and earliest memories around food, around family were at Passover, at Rosh Hashanah, at breakfast. And I think that really just solidified this love for food, but also this understanding of hospitality. It's power to build community, to show love and just be so much more than nourishment. To sort of bring people together. But how how you end up in the food world? Because let's say that's not usually a Jewish mother's aspiration for her kids is for them to end up in the world of food. They want them to eat, but not to work in it. There you go. A hundred percent. Yes. For me, it was in high school. I was someone that I, I was of the generation Food Network at its prime. I'd come home from school every day. I would turn it on. I would watch Giada and Ina Garten and Rachel Ray and 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 I started throwing these little dinner parties for friends and they weren't very good. Obviously, I was just <laughs> like this child, but um, it, it was the first time where I really got a taste of hospitality, of cooking for others, of that power and the love and attention and admiration that you receive in response. And it was very powerful. And I knew pretty much from then, it was like, I, this is what I want to do. And I, I had my mind set on it. I applied to the Culinary Institute of America. It was the only college I applied to, no backup. It was just like, this is what's going to happen. And I'm always someone that's, I have these fantasies and if it doesn't fit with my fantasy, that's not going to work for me. What they really like hammer into you in culinary schools, go and work for the, the best restaurant you could work at, do, do the best thing, the hardest thing, challenge yourself. And for me, that was uh, going to a three Michelin star restaurant in New York. So that's what I did. And I went to Danielle and it was an incredible experience, something that I would never do again uh, <laughs> because it's just not me. It's not my vibe. So from there, I went to ABC Kitchen, which is obviously like, a very hot restaurant in New York under Jean-Georges that farms a table and we were getting everything from the green market and it was fresh and everyone loved it. It was so hard to get a table. And even like switching up the type of restaurant just didn't do it for me. And I kind of came to the realization, like, I don't want to own a restaurant. I don't want to run a restaurant. God bless both of you for, for, for <laughs> doing such an incredible job with it. But for me, I just knew that there was passion around food separate from the restaurant world. Um, yeah. And I, I made the switch to media and I started from the bottom as an intern and then worked my way up onto the, the masthead at Sever and then went to digital and then went to, I was the food critic for a time out in New York for a while, reviewing restaurants and, and then focused more on social. So I, I, I jumped around and throughout that whole time was focusing on building my own platform and social media yeah. followings in which I could continue to leverage that for sharing recipes, sharing ideas, inspiring people in the kitchen. And I, and I think once I did that enough to a degree where, where it wasn't just me speaking to a void, but having a dialogue with a, a, a <laughs> large community, people, yeah. people start to, to pay attention, yeah. um, which is nice. But it seems to me like, you know, and I'm, I'm, glad about it that you you have found your voice you have found your clan and it is not a small clan it's not niche i mean your book jewish came out 2021 so kind of like the eve of the pandemic it found a huge crowd it had big resonance new york Times bestsellers list yeah that's a little a little you a know little a little cherry yeah. on top it's quite a crowd and i think you, you did manage to reach a lot of kitchens and a lot of hearts definitely our hearts with your kind of unique take on things and your source material 
was not easy. You know, you didn't shy away from hardcore Ashkenazi food, which is, you know, not not. But is it? But isn't I guess it? That's what I'm looking. <laughs> no, that's what I'm looking to change. That is this conversation that we're having right now. Is I spent so long listening to what the food world determined was good, what was determined was was hip. And I mean, you two are a perfect example. Like what you've done with Honey and Cohen. Like I remember like we went to after my husband and I got engaged, we did this crazy three-week trip through Europe that was all like based on reservations we made. And we obviously went to Honey and Co. for brunch. But the idea that in London, this food capital in Europe, in which really the only foods that were celebrated are European foods, French food, Italian food. You look at America of what is designated as a fancy restaurant, what is designated as something that people would want to make at home. How many non-Italian people own an Italian cookbook? But how many non-Jewish people own a, a Jewish cookbook? I think a lot of it is not actually based on the food itself, but it's based on the way that we as a society deem what is good and what isn't. So yes, a lot of Jewish food is rooted in poverty and needs a little updating. But once you update it, this is delicious. If you love mushrooms, if you love cabbage, if you love fermented foods, if you love long braced stews, if you love hearty grains and beans, like great. There's a lot of Spanish food that really all it is is it's like the same vibe as Ashkenazi yeah. food with a little yeah. smoked paprika in it. Like that, that's really like <laughs> like there's so many parallels and similarities. So so I just want to change people's mindsets. I would say a perfect example is kashavarnishkas, old school Ashkenazi. Typically, I get it at deli. It's super gray and and not that nice. And it's it's bow tie pasta with buckwheat groats, fried onions, sometimes with mushrooms. And and I was like all right, we're not going to put this in a little deli cup. Instead, we're going to treat this like this is your your pasta night. And we're making like a nice kasha varnish because you're going to cook down lots of fancy mushrooms, caramelized onions. We're going to treat this well, finish it with lemon and chopped dill. It's going to be bright and hearty and earthy and everything that you didn't think you knew about Jewish food. So guess what? Tuesday night, we're making Jewish food for dinner. Yeah. yeah. So the accolades like this book making the new york times list like no one expected that my publisher definitely didn't (laughs) i did because again like i said i have these fantasies and that was part of the fantasy Mm. but for me it's not about me this book is it's a very like common thing in the jewish world at least in america something is categorized as either good for the jews or bad for the jews and that could be a person a place a thing an event an idea a company and i've always just wanted to do something that was good for the jews which is because once i started cooking it it started unraveling all of these aspects of, of my identity that I, I just eventually realized that like everything in my life, whether big or small, is touched by Judaism, touched by a Jewish upbringing, touched by my connection to hospitality and food through the Jewish lens. And I can't separate myself from that. And I don't want to or need to. But, but, it's, a, it's a relatively new thing. But, but Jake, how do you then take that to a publisher and say to them, hey, this is what I'm going to do, because no one is really celebrating their Judaism there, and still you you have managed to publish a book, and this is by no means a small feat, and to to come to publishers, and like you say, you don't have a restaurant specifically, then it's easier to explain the route, but how do you go about actually having this good idea, developing an identity, and getting it done? I'll tell you, it was 
something that I leveraged my social media following, my connections in the industry of who I'd been contributing to publication-wise. And I was given a chance by a publisher, wasn't given a big advance. It was very much treated as it was a second tier project. Like we were, it was something that was going to be great. Another Jew, a Jewish book from, from this kid. It'll probably be fine because he's got enough followers that a couple of people will buy it and, and great. His aunties. He'll stay like that. His aunties. He'll stay, he'll stay like that. <laughs> it wasn't until I was able to prove that, no, 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 no. The world is going to pay attention to Jewish food. We are going to be celebrating this. We are going to be putting this on the Today Show, on Rachel Ray, in these magazines. Like This is going to be something that we are going to pause and really give some thought towards that I now can go back to them. And my next Jewish book will be treated like any other primetime cookbook on yep. the market. And that's part of, of just the world is changing. And I had to hustle to make sure that this first one did really well so that it wouldn't be that the next time around it's like no actually you saw what happened no one wanted the jewish book let's do instant pot or or, i don't know some other fad thing that people love to to crank out a cookbook for that was never enough for me my book had to have voice it had to be an extension of myself it had to be fun and campy and it, it couldn't be too serious that could only happen if i was just being myself on paper. And, and that had to be through a Jewish lens. It's like even in, in conversations about future books or projects and, and going more general, like what does a general Jake Cohen cookbook look like? Even if it's not like in your face Jewish, its undertones are always going to be Jewish in the same way that Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's not like, it's not Schissel, but it's still inherently Jewish <laughs> because that's who he is. Um, Don't you think the I food think on Stizel looks pretty bad, though? <laughs> you know, when they're, when they're eating on Stizel, it doesn't look, you know. It doesn't make you a mouthwater. <laughs> yeah, we are, we, are going, we are all about the celebration. I think there's enough incredible Ashkenazi food happening in Israel in the same way there's incredible <laughs> Mizrahi food and Sephardic food, New York especially, whether that's Hungarian Jewish food, Latvian Jewish food, Russian Jewish food. We're seeing so much more of that from young Ashkenazi chefs that are leaning into that aspect of their heritage. When I think about everything that I want to do in terms of this platform that I've built, it's lifting up other voices. It's the baseline of everything I want to do going forward to make it easier for the next generation. It sounds like when you say it now, it sounds like a very articulate mission statement to kind of like revitalize and shine this beautiful light on on Ashkenazi food, which is really getting, was getting for a long time, quite bad rep. Usually from you, Itamal. Like I'm just going to point it out as like... But that's fine. There's a lot of internalized... No, but you know, I I married like this, you know, this guy over there and he thinks, oh, I'm Yemeni Egyptian. I, you know, I eat the best food and he automatically, this is everything. What, Itamar? No, because I, we, but I think, you know, a lot of people, I think especially in Israel have the same, you know, because I'm kind of mixed heritage, half Ashkenazi, half Sephardi. And then like, you know, the holidays that you do with the Ashkenazi side, you're like, why? (laughs) And then the holiday (laughs) with the Mizrahi side, it's like, yeah. It's different. And this is something that that happened and will, I mean, in my household, my husband is Persian Iraqi Jewish and our... Was was it an option for you to marry marry outside the faith? (laughs) The faith of Ashkenazi. We're we're gay, so the rules are pretty much out the window. Um, No, I mean for you personally. Oh, yeah. Again, it 
it was funny. It was something that I happened to find a Jew. That's it. I am a big believer in your identity, your passion, your continuation of Judaism in your children doesn't have to be bound by marrying within the community, but preserving and passing on these traditions, that's just not up for discussion. You don't have to stay religious, but to cut off your children from stories, recipes, traditions, it's selfish because it puts a, a, a roadblock for then future generations that want to look back and find this connection to Eastern Europe or the Middle East or North Africa and just don't have these resources. Yeah. A perfect example of that is is my husband, all of his cousins, none of them knew how to make kubba. Obviously, kubba is different variations across the Levant, but in Iraq, the Iraqi Jewish community typically do it. It's the semolina dumpling stuffed with beef and uh, in, in cooked in a sweet and sour beet broth. Uh, so it's vibrant red and lemony and and so absolutely incredible. His mother's generation doesn't even really make it either because the oldest aunts and grandmothers still make the kubba for the family. And no one has anything written down. So I'm the one who went in, started making it with these aunts, followed them around with measuring cups in a scale, redid it at home, translated this recipe into something that's now preserved for his family forever. Yeah. And I want to do that with my family, with his family, with every family. Every I, I, I just think that that is the mission. Yeah. So much of, of this recipe, there was this one step that his aunt was doing, which was rinsing the rice and then drying the rice before she ground it. And and they're doing this based on, on just repetition because back yeah. in Iran, back in Iraq, like you had to because there were stones, there were pebbles, there were twigs. You had to clean the rice. It was filthy. Yeah, we don't get that anymore. <laughs> we don't need that anymore. And so yeah. that's, a, that's, that's hours cut off the recipe now because you can get <laughs> skip it. And there's so many instances of that th- those things happening in which you get to start to think – great now we're in america we can have we have these ingredients available if you can't get this like in the middle east like great let's go in this route and it changes it i'm not saying that this is not changing the the story but that's jewish food at its core evolving recipes based on the movement of jews the only difference is yeah. is that it used to be out of trauma out of fleeing um out of war and now it's it's out of joy it's about out of we move we marry into different cultures what I'm most excited about is this blending of Ashkenazi and Mizrahi and Sephardi traditions and recipes, because yeah. too often we talk about this internalized separation between the communities. The idea of like, oh, you have to marry a Jew. For a lot of these communities, like if you're, you're Persian Jewish, you have to marry a Persian Jew. Buhar, you have to marry a Buharian Jew. You have to marry another Ashkenazi. And, and I just think that that's so counterproductive to this idea of us and the unity of the Jewish people as a whole, which is really like celebrating the entire diaspora and all of our traditions. And they're all beautiful and they're all different and they all have their place. And I throw an incredible Ashkenazi Seder that like you can find great gefilte fish now in the States. You have to remember a lot of it was tied to the industrialization of, of the food complex. Um, so as soon as people start jarring gefilte fish, yeah, it got kind of nasty, but <laughs> you find some really boutique artisanal gefilte fish here in New York and it's delicious and you have no issue paying God knows how much at a Michelin star restaurant for some kind of fish mousse. This is what it is. It's a parallel. Yeah. It's yeah. a parallel. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But, but New York is amazing for Jewish delis, but also like Jewish delis in, in Philadelphia and Boston, like really good stuff, good food, good attention to detail. It's nice to see that. It's not really managed to infiltrate the UK yet, I don't think. But but you have great Israeli food. From personal experience, every time I go to London, I always end up in a great Israeli restaurant. Yeah. We got sick, we got a cold. And what did I want? Matzo ball soup. <laughs> I wanted, and I, I, I had to get ramen because there was no matzo yeah. ball. Yeah. There was no chicken yeah, yeah, yeah. soup. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Itaman, I think we talk about it quite often. When we were kids, we remember this aspect of if you were a Sephardi Jew or Ashkenazi Jew, or you know, you would stick to your kind of. It was quite racist when we were kids, in a way, between the. Yeah. And now Israel is like, you know, it's kind of an open to all. So the food is mixed so much because everyone marries like Itaman. I married. We're from quite a wide mix of traditions, and most of our friends have all married kind of mixed. So everyone's eating everything and stuff like that. So the Israeli food has kind of evolved a lot. Where Maybe if communities have stayed a bit secular, then the food hasn't evolved as much. But it's obviously starting to change now. Um, give me like some examples of things that you would say your husband has influenced in the book. This book is a love story because if it wasn't for our relationship, we wouldn't have had this desire to explore Jewish identity. How do we build a Jewish household? What does that mean to us? What traditions do we want to maintain? He had never had babka. He never heard of babka before. He had never had gefilte fish, matzo ball soup. And likewise, I had never had tadik. I never had kugba. I never had gormasabsi. I never had any of the things that he grew up eating for these same rituals. We're all celebrating the same rituals, just with a different menu. And I've been enamored by that. The way that haroset 
looks in my family versus my husband's. Obviously, Ashkenazi, apples, walnuts, Manischewitz, in America at least, and in Iraqi households, it's just chopped walnuts and Ceylon and date syrup. And in Morocco, they'll make them into to truffles with dates. Like, it, there's so many constants. I love that you say that. I was kind of what catches me through the book is you have your holiday menus, your uh, Rosh Hashanah menus and your Hanukkah menus. Looking at it, it was like, oh, this is ours. This is, you know, this is new. This is different. This is familiar. I think that there's definitely memories for anyone that's from that's got any kind of Jewish connection in childhood. Then the book will bring back things. But also, I think very approachable if you're not. So like I found, you know, you have this thing about Kugel, and you try and explain Kugel to to anyone <laughs> that isn't Jewish, really. But my husband, quite... my husband had never had Kugel. He didn't understand it. He still doesn't really get but you it. You have to explain um, to people on the podcast because quite a lot of listeners are not Jewish and won't know what Kugel is. So explain, so, and then let's talk about variations after. Yeah, Kugel. It's it's a it's a, a noodle pudding, a noodle casserole with a, a very dairy heavy custard of typically cottage cheese and sour cream and eggs blended together and used as a binding for egg noodles. And the thing is, is traditionally in an Ashkenazi home, it's served at dinner, but it's sweet. So it's sweet and flavored with cinnamon and raisins. And it feels like dessert, but it's not, which is why kids love it. But (laughs) at the end of the day, that was the thing. My husband could not, and he still is not very big on mixing like sweet and savory. Which is why I started making savory kugels, which is where like I veer from tradition, but I'm also thinking it's like, great, we're modernizing Jewish food. Like we're keeping this tradition of kugel and, and the power of cottage cheese and egg as a binder for almost like a, a baked mac and cheese. But instead of making a bechamel, you're just using kugel base. For us, the kugel thing was the biggest argument when we... Because I have the Ashkenazi idea where it comes with like cinnamon and raisins. Yeah. But for Itamar, look at his face. Like, you know, it, it, for him, it's a Jerusalem style. Well, you can tell them what's a Jerusalem one. It's a completely different animal. Completely different. Yeah. So it's it's still kind of sweet, but actually not that sweet. It doesn't have eggs, I don't think, or dairy. I think you just cook it in oil and caramel oil. and a lot of black pepper. Loads of black pepper. Like it's kilos like a- of black pepper. And you have it, you cook it overnight so it comes out really caramelized and brown. And you have it with pickles. Which is strange. <laughs> but, it's, the- but it's good. It's, it's, yeah. And- but I do, I do think that in America, this food is so revered outside of Jewish community. You know, matzo ball soup is an American thing, bagels are American, babkas are American. I feel bagels are everywhere, but here's the issue. The majority of people in America could not tell you that bagel is a Jewish food. They don't know the history of why we had to sell bagels and they don't understand who brought them to America. There's this idea of, of New York has the best bagels because of the water. No, no, no. New York has the base, best bagels because we have the Jews that brought the bagels. So they, <laughs> they are the ones that know how to bake it. And as Don't the Jews, they say that about the pizza as well? The pizza. I mean, the pizza is very good. I will say we have the best pizza. But at the end of the day, we, that's also because you had the largest influx of Italian immigrants. So when we think about like, great, Jews then moved to L.A. Bagel shops open in L.A. Great. You get delicious bagels in L.A. now. You, you can get it anywhere. However, in the majority of the country... You can only get mass-produced industrial food complex yeah. bagels. Yeah, just yeah. gross. 
That's what people but, learn. Like, oh, that's what a bagel is. A lot of food gets ruined by the mass production of food, doesn't it? You kind of lose yeah. the essence. But another big part of Jewish cooking is slow and long cooking, which kind of comes from this tradition of putting food on for a Sabbath and not having yes. to cook then. So tell us a bit about kind of things that you would slow cook, how, how that kind of... I'm looking to really push that entertaining, having people over for dinner, throwing a party, throwing a holiday. It shouldn't like make you want to pull your hair out. It shouldn't be that rough on you. It should be fun. The best foods are ones that you have to make in advance because they taste so much better later on. And it's not just Jewish food, any culture that has long braises, it's always better the next day, two days. So my big argument is like, make a brisket. You get to make your brisket on Wednesday, pop it in the fridge, and then Friday, you just throw it on the stovetop and reheat it. But then there's also those little things that you uncover, like the history of the slow cooker. And slow cookers were invented for cholent, for... (laughs) The Jewish community. For, for, that, yeah, for Jews to <laughs> like like that's and and most people don't know these things. And once you understand them and understand why did they do that? Why did they have to do that? How has kosher law influenced so much of the way we cook or the way that we have tweaked different foods from around the world as we, we have had to move into new communities? Once you start to understand that, you start to understand like what makes Jewish food Jewish food. What's it? What no, I thought <laughs> I'm trying to not interrupt you. Itamar and I are trying this thing of not interrupting each other. We're very bad at we it. We tried it in 2019. It was hugely frustrating. <laughs> I don't know if we want to do it again. <laughs> I want to talk about challah. If you can repeat everyone, first of all, the symbolism and how easy it is, I suppose. It is pretty easy. Um, I think for most Jews, even if they're secular, if they've had any type of Jewish education as a child, the things that they remember the most are kind of the three prayers at Shabbat. And that's to light the candles for the wine and for the challah. And separate from the religious aspect, Shabbat itself is this incredible act of self-care in which you're separating one day from the other six days of work and grind and focusing on making the, the true kind of like idea behind it is six days of the week, you're focused on making the world a better place. And one day of the week, you're focused on resting and recharging. But these prayers are symbols of how you really designate this time for rest. So the candles are to ignite. It's this little act of lighting. The match is the last act of work that you do before you unplug. The wine is the symbol of the, the sanctification of the day, of your taking something mundane like grapes and turning it into something holy like wine. And challah, bread, is what makes it a meal, what creates the intention around the space you're building with family, friends, or strangers. I, I think that's an important part is it's this conduit for bonding, for connection. So... I have fallen in love with baking kala, which I actually didn't until lockdown. I, it was always a special occasion thing. But since lockdown, I've been pretty strict about baking it every Friday. And baking bread for someone is special. There is never yeah. going to be like a moment in which you sit down for dinner and someone's baked you bread from scratch and it's warm and fresh that it's not special, it's that you can – taste the love and care and and attention that goes into it. It turns strangers into friends and friends into family. And that's the power of Shabbat. 
anyone who's listening who's not Jewish, it's like Shabbat can be for you too. I, I think people forget that yoga was a Hindu practice that people just started doing because guess what? It, it's good for you. There's so many things that you can take from, from Judaism separate from the religious aspect, just at its core are these incredible acts of self-care and or moral or ethical learnings that can help better yourself and your life and the, the way that you treat others. And I've been on this, this real path of encouraging everyone to learn how to bake challah It was a good time for it. It's a good time. Because in lockdown, everyone was baking bread. This is like being everyone. So project. much easier than sourdough. It's so, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't take you 36 hours to get a loaf of bread on the table. Yeah, that's true. And yours is a six plat, which is a little bit more elaborate than most. It looks amazing. Most importantly, I'm a big believer in like, you do you. I'm not like... As long as you're baking yeah. challah, I don't care what you do with it. You can Not like roll. The, like my favorite is like you roll it out and then you just coil it up into a round and bake that. Still delicious. Still a great yeah. plan. I also think that people don't know how good challah is the day after and how many things you can do with it. French toast challah is the only bread. The only bread. Croutons. No, you the, be the, the best is to to soak it and then put it in meatballs and it makes meatballs super fluffy as well. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a good one. Ooh, I'm going to do. Okay. Now I feel like for <laughs> now, my next book. Now his head for, is ticking. Yeah. Now I think for my next book, I want to do a challah meatloaf. You, you like, should. It's really good. The, the texture is super, super fluffy. Yeah. It keeps love it kind that. of set. I clocked the challah panzanella in your book. And I just know that it's going to soak those juices so well. Yeah. So I, we always say, you know. Make two, make three, like make more. So, Jake, you mentioned in passing the next book. Are you allowed to talk about it a little bit? Are you allowed to tell us a little bit about it? The big thing that I'm very excited upon that I'm diving into is our bagels. Oh, yeah. Um, because I oh, do yes. think that that's something that needs to be normalized as not only a Jewish food, but also that it's something that you can 100% make yourself. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're massive fans so of much bagels, better. so yeah. yeah. Can I ask, the, the book has been so successful. Are you a celebrity now? Like when you leave the house, do people like, oh my God, or no, just in the uh, Jewish community or look, look at him blushing. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what to say. Little um, bit. It, it's funny because for the average person, they're like, who the hell is Jake Cohen? Everyone knows 15 Jake Cohens, but uh, for, yeah. A small subsect of millennial Jews are like, oh, Jay Cohen. I know who that is. <laughs> so you me you mentioned before giving platform and, and promoting Jewish voices. We have a little project. In the past, I think, three weeks, we've had a little bit of a discussion in the house, in our house, that we're trying to do the kosher version of OMG and trying to introduce Oh My Hashem <laughs> as an expression. Wow. Do you oh like it? Oh My Hashem. Yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. Interesting is like the worst thing that you can say. No, no, You're no, either because, in love because, or you hate because, it. Because I never say, oh, my God. I always say OMG. Or no, actually, I never say OMG. I always say, oh, my God. But um, I'm just thinking OMH. Yeah. I'm just trying to think if there's another another thing that people say that's like, there's like on my way. But no, I think OMH is it's kosher. I think you could take it. I, I, I think it's gonna it's gonna creep into your speak, Jake. Before before too long, you're gonna oh, be oh my Hashemming. I've been trying yeah. to fight it for three weeks, and then even I catch you, myself you, occasionally yeah. saying it, which is oh my Hashem. I love that. I think Thank that's a so I, think, I think that's a really fun one. 
yeah. Um, so this really this fun. is my you know you you've done so much to promote uh, Jewish causes, so many so many things that are good for Jews. I've done nothing, but this would be my <laughs> thing. And and I'm I'm looking for ambassadors for this uh, little. Um, I think you know what I think you need to do. Tell me. Merch, you got to have it on a T-shirt. Oh my Hashem, that is so correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do I not have it? How, how is it not a tote bag yeah. already? You gotta, gotta get that, gotta get that trademark yeah. before I come yeah. in. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want a trademark. I want every. It's it's an open source. I just it's want it open, out there. Wow, what a mensch! Love it, love it, love it, love it. Uh, so funny. You guys are mad. You know, merch thing. This is a very American thing. You don't get a lot of um, merch. Is almost like embarrassing in the UK, whereas in the US sure. everyone's like, merch is amazing. <laughs> because we are, we are capitalism. Like it's like, that's <laughs> it. It's like merch is an extension of that. And I think that there's something really, so I'm doing all these recipe videos. A huge part of, of what I try to do is wear merch of brands, people, restaurants that I love. So I will wear like the Russ and Daughters, ex Jake Gyllenhaal have a few items out <laughs> that they work together on that I wear. Or there's this young queer Jewish guy uh, who has this this company called Bubala, and it's it's like he has these tank tops for Pride that say Fagala on it, and I wore it, and people go crazy. They're like, "Oh, I need it. I need that tank top." So to me, I think there's something really powerful about it in the states, at least. It's a sign of allegiance to a restaurant brand chef person that it's very unique and it's strange. It's not, not strange because every person who gets any type of like, it's even on social media, everyone launches merch and it's like, it has like their sayings on shirts or on hoodies or on hats. And I find it fascinating because people love to buy and wear it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you kind of fly, fly the flag. If you fly can. the flag. Mm-hmm. I like that. And I, I want everyone to fly the flag for Omar Hashem. Omar Hashem. <laughs> <laughs> Jake, we just loved having this conversation with you. I am a little bit more forgiving towards Ashkenazi food than <laughs> I was before. <laughs> I will definitely try Kugel. We're going to do a pop-up. I'm coming to London. Yeah, We're going to do yeah. a Jewish Honey and Co. pop-up and it's going to be only Ashkenazi foods. You, oh we can have God. it be like we can have it with with a lot of Middle Eastern, North African like ingredients, spices, influences. But the dishes themselves will be Ashkenazi. We're gonna have kind of harissa, chopped liver, and oh God, preserved delicious. lemon, chicken soup, all of these things. A hundred percent. Do you know what? I would so love for this to happen. I think we will have the best Shabbat ever, and people will will love you know, taking part of it, you know, you bring the light. It was just marvelous talking to you. It's such a pleasure. It's my favorite thing to do is just talk about. Yabber on about <laughs> food. That's also, yeah. you know, a big food. Jewish, a big Jewish <laughs> pastime. <laughs> such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, definitely next time in person in London. He's hoping. That is it for this episode of Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. Do join us for the rest of the Autumn series. We'll be talking to chefs and writers from all over the world and from across food traditions too. We'll be talking to Copenhagen's Trina Hanneman, to Seattle's Renee Erickson, and to London's Sammy Tamimi and Tara Wigley. Chetna Makan will bring us a taste of Mumbai via Kent. 
Carol I need in journeys to Central Asia. And we'll end on something sweet, as always, with pastry chef extraordinaire Avnit Gill. Thank you to our producer Miranda Hinckley, to our engineers Paul Brogdon and John Scott, to Daniel Winshaw for writing the music, and thanks to Louisa Cornford, our Lulu, uh, for all the help she puts into the podcast, and to all our team at Honey & Co. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.